Let's pray this morning as we come to God's word. Lord, just thank you uh, for your word this morning. Thank you, God, that, uh, that you desire to speak to your people. And Lord, it's our heart to, to hear you, to hear your voice, to hear what your spirit wants to say to the church this morning. And so, Lord, we just ask your blessing upon this time. Open our eyes uh, to see, Lord. Open our ears to hear the wonderful things that are in your word, Lord, just as Julie reminded us. Your word is a, la- uh, a lamp, a light to our path and a lamp unto our feet. And so, Lord, help us see, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet. So we're jumping back into John's Gospel, uh, chapter 10. And uh, we're going to be on the, the second half of this uh, chapter, settling in. And uh, the, first, the first half, it's been, a, it's been a little while. We had, we had a great holiday, just to tell you, um, away uh, getting Jonah settled in California. And he's doing really well at the Bible school. We, uh, we got him in his room. And then we saw he needed some different things. So we said, we'll, we'll take off and go find some things for your room. And so we took off and we came back and went looking for him. And we found him on campus in the coffee shop. And he had met four guys from Surrey and Langley and South Surrey. And uh, uh, just a crew of buddies already. And so Lisa and I were just so thankful as parents, you know, the first one flying out of the nest to uh, um, see him establish some friendships right away. And so thanks for your prayers. And um, we came home feeling rested and ready to get into the fall, and so it's good. Praise the Lord. And, and so as we come to John chapter 10, we, we were last year looking at the story of the Good Shepherd where, where Jesus uh, said, I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the door. And he said, I am uh, the Good Shepherd. And that account that John tells us about it, it transitions with just a couple verses, verse 19 through through 21 at the end, uh, midway through that chapter. And they, they, those verses tell us this, this, that there was great division amongst the people at the teaching of Jesus. The people were divided with regards to understanding who he was and what his identity was. Some said he is a demon. Um, and they asked this question, why would we listen to this man? He is a demon. Others said, these are not the words of someone who's oppressed or controlled by a demonic spirit. And and they said, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so as Jesus had been teaching, it was bringing division amongst uh, the people because the truth is that when you hear about Jesus, it's impossible to remain neutral. Jesus himself said, You're either for me or you're against me. And there's not any space in between. And so the division was growing. And and so as we come to the scriptures this morning, uh, we have to understand this, that the word of God is always leading us to a person. Like, you know, I often pray the written word leads us to the living word, right? The written word leads us to the person the Son of God, Jesus, who is the living word. And, and the primary topic of what Jesus taught about and what this text is going to point us to this morning is, is Jesus' identity. You know, people often get this misconception about what Jesus was always teaching about. They say, well, what was Jesus teaching about? He was teaching about love. Yes, he was. But first and foremost, 
The primary focus of his teaching was to reveal to people who he himself was. Who are you, Jesus? And so he was teaching so that people who heard him would understand and grow in an understanding of who he is. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we go, yeah, wow, he did lots of wonderful things, but the question and the thing that matters mostly and firstly is this, is who was he? And that was the question that people were asking. You know, we're three years into his ministry. In fact, we're gonna see here in this text where John takes us that we're now less than six months. We're like four months from the cross here in this text. And, and that was the question that people were asking with regards to Jesus. Who is he? Who is Jesus? And even today when you read the Gospel of John, that is the question that confronts you time and time again. And so check it out in verse 22. It says this. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So there's that question. That's the question that they were confronting him with. Who are you? Now John tells us the time of year, what was going on. He says it's winter. It was winter. It was at the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication takes place in December. It's, it's also called the Festival of Lights. And we know it today as, you know, what it is? Hanukkah. It's the festival of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. And it was this eight-day celebration. It wasn't a, uh, something that was instructed or commanded in the scriptures, but Hanukkah had become a tradition for them in the, in the, over the previous 150 years. And the history of Hanukkah was this, is that it, that it commemorated and it celebrated the reinstitution of worship in uh, the temple and, and the, the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. You see, about 150 years before Jesus, a little bit more than that, 165 years, the empire that was controlling the area before the Romans had really come to power was the Seleucid em Empire. And there was a, a king who was in charge at that time by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And the name Epiphanes means this. <laughs> It means God manifest. So this king who was a, Greek, a Syrian Greek king took this name upon himself. It wasn't the name that he was born with. He wasn't given this name from the king of heaven. But he took upon himself this name Epiphanes and he said, I'm God manifest. We know who's God manifest is. It's Jesus. But this king appeared on the scene. They, they, they had Jerusalem under his, under his control and so Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple and he's very famous for this. He's a foreshadow of the Antichrist. He, he performed the abomination, a foreshadow of the abomination that causes desolation. He sacrificed on the altar of the Lord's swine in the temple of Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple and he made it an unclean place to worship. And... And so what happened is this, is it, it was the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and between the New Testament and that 400 years of silence. What happened is this, is that 
and maybe you know some of this in history, the Maccabean revolt happened. And a family uh, called the Maccabees led a revolt against this Greek king. And one son, Judas Maccabee, went back into the temple uh, in 165 BC and he cleansed the altar. He restored the worship of God. And he was the one that what he found, what legend, what history says, he found in the temple is one small bottle of oil that had not been desecrated in the midst of this. And so they took this little bottle of oil. They relit the lamp of the Lord as the temple was dedicated to the Lord. And the miracle of Hanukkah is that the lamp burned for eight days off this little bottle of oil. And so over these 150 years before the time of Jesus, this had become a celebration amongst the, the Jewish people. They celebrate it to this time today, to our generation, called the Feast of Dedication, because the temple was dedicated, called the Feast or Festival of Lights because of this miracle. And it's called Hanukkah. So, this is the context. Hanukkah's happening. And in the days of Jesus, now once again, Israel is under the thumb of an oppressor. There's oppression. A foreign invader. Uh, the Seleucid dynasty has passed, but the Roman Empire has risen. And at the time of Jesus, it's in full swing, man. Israel is under the, throne, the thumb of Rome. And, and just like those years, uh, a little more than 150 years beforehand, God's people were frustrated. God's people were oppressed. God's people were looking and hope for a redeemer. They were looking for a Judas Maccabee to come and save them and to restore worship and free them from the hand of the oppressor. And they were looking in hope. They were frustrated and they were looking for the coming of the Messiah. They were looking for the one greater than Judas Maccabee. Uh, one whom they believe would not just set them free for a few years, but one who would set them free as a nation and as a people forever. That's what they believe the Messiah would do. And so the f during the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, there's Jesus. He's walking through the temple. Interesting, John tells us he's in Solomon's colonnade. I don't know, December, maybe it was cold and wet, so Jesus is finding shelter under the colonnade. They saw him and thought, man, could this be the one? Like Solomon, who is David's son, the son of David, walking through the colonnade? Could this be the one greater than Judas Maccabee? Could it be that he is the Messiah? And with it being Hanukkah, the political and nationalistic hope of, of Israel that was like at its annual high, man. It was just peaking. Just peaking. Now, it's going to tell us in a second what happens, but I, I got to tell you a story. When I was a kid, we went one time into the city. I grew up here, so we went into the city. I was a small town boy, and I went to visit my cousin, and my cousin had a single mom, and they lived in what, you know, in my mind was like the projects of the projects in Vancouver. <laughs> And so we went to visit them. We were dropping something off and my cousin was there and my brother and I was about, 
11 years old. And we decided we'd walk around the building. And so we got around to the back of the building. The three of us are walking. And there was a group of kids. And they said, hey, there's so-and-so, my cousin. And they start running at us. So we'd like to do the eye contact thing. And my brother and my cousin, boom, they're gone. And I'm like, uh, so I like just decided I was going to play it cool. So I kept walking. And this posse of boys, about a half a dozen of them, uh, catch up to me. They surrounded me front and back and sides. And there was nowhere to go. And my brother was gone. And my cousin was gone. And I played it cool. And I got out of the situation. I talked my way out of it. And so I I tell you that because I want you to catch that picture. Because look at verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now that's like sanitized. You have to know that in English, that's like sanitized. To say that they gathered around him, it's like, no, they boxed him in. They surrounded Jesus and they closed in on him. There's nowhere to go. And, And they said, we want information from you. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Literally in Greek, that means this. How long will you hold up our souls? How long will you hold back our souls? Tell us. Plainly. If you're the Christ, then tell us. Now imagine, I mean, just imagine it's Hanukkah. If Jesus says, yes, I'm I'm the Messiah. If he just comes out nice and clear, just like that, immediately it's going to be chaos. Like they're going to they're going to grab him, they're going to be trying to put a crown on his head, they're going to they're going to declare him their political leader to who's going to free them from op- oppression uh, from Rome and and all hell is going to break loose and it's going to be disastrous for Israel. Rome's going to come with a with a heavy hand and and I I read this I just thought, you know what? I'm so glad. I'm so glad Jesus is not a politician. Are you glad that our savior is not a politician. I'm sick of politicians. Don't get me ranting, man. And governments. I'm glad my Savior is not a politician. He's a king. And the king came for this reason, to free us. And, and he, had co- he came to free his people. He came to free those who would follow him from the greatest of oppressor. And it wasn't Rome. The greatest oppressor of all is sin. But this crowd did not understand that. And sometimes we fail to understand that. This crowd thought oppression was exerted from without. They thought oppression was exerted from forces on the outside. That oppression is exerted from governments and corrupt political leaders and the tax man and They thought that's what oppression was. Political forces on the outside. And they could not grasp this truth. That true oppression doesn't happen on the outside. It comes from the inside. Jesus said, out of men's hearts come all wickedness and evil and this. Murder and adultery and all of these different things. To be mastered by sin, that's oppression. To be a slave to sin, to be dead in sin. To have sin 
yank your chain. To remind you, you serve me. You're my servant, and I'm your master, and with me, you're never free. I own you. See, they didn't know this truth that we know as a church 2,000 years later that the scripture says if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. You are free if the son sets you free. An external opposition, oppression holds no candle on a man or a woman who's been set free from sin and death through the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why the persecuted church is like a monster in the world, you know, like in a good way. It's like the gospel advances where the church is persecuted because oppression from the outside is nothing for people that have been set free on the inside. They had no freedom from sin. Freedom from the power of sin by the blood and name of Jesus. And so this crowd, they didn't know Jesus is a chain breaker. They they didn't know that Jesus was going to open prison doors and set captives free. They didn't know that the problem of oppression is not without, but within. And Jesus had been speaking and revealing his identity all along, but they could not hear him. And so look what he says in verse 25. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Interesting, Jesus said, I've been speaking all along. My works speak. The miracles I do are proof enough. You you ask if I am the Messiah, what more evidence do I need to give? It's interesting that John's going to tell us in the next chapter next week about the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. I mean, what more evidence do you need? Jesus has been, who hear, who's ever heard of the eyes of the blind being open, lame walking? And he says, the problem is this. The problem is, is that you're not amongst my sheep. You know, I'm the good shepherd and my sheep hear my voice and the problem is, I'm not your shepherd. That's why you can't, understand that's why you're not hearing what i'm saying that's why you can't look at my miracles and recognize that of course i'm the messiah i'm the son of god the problem is you're not amongst my sheep see the problem was they didn't have a relationship with the shepherd you know when you don't have a relationship with the shepherd you'll never clearly see him for who he is jesus oh yeah he said nice things and us to love one another and yeah, Jesus he like he did good stuff I don't you know totally understand but if you don't have a relationship with him you'll never understand his claims look at what Jesus says about his sheep in verse 27 my sheep hear my voice sentiment I like, I like this my sheep hear my voice I know them they follow me I give them eternal life they will never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, Jesus describes what it's like to be in relationship with him, for him to be the shepherd and you to be his sheep. 
He says to have relationship with him is to hear his voice. It's to be known by him. He says to have relationship means this, that you follow him. You, you follow his lead. You go where he's going. To have relationship with Jesus, he says, is this. It is eternal life. To have relationship with Jesus means this, that there's no fear in death. That's what he said. Death has no hold on them. He says to have relationship with me means this, that I have you in the palm of my hand and you're secure. Secure. See, when Jesus is your shepherd, there's no, there's no reason to be insecure because he's got you. It's a safe place. You know, I was thinking about that when my kids were little. You know how just as a parent, you grab their hand, you're doing something, and like, hey, we got to cross the street, hold my hand. You, know, you want to walk down this log, hold my hand. And, and the security is not in the fact that any of my kids were ever hanging on to me. The security was this. I was hanging on to them. And you know, once in a while we'd play that game as parents where I would take one hand and Lisa would take the other. You know, we'd walk with those kids and we'd swing them. How many parents do that with their, their kids, right? You swing them and they're like, again, dad. Yeah, again, mom. And whew, you give them that swing and they take the leap and that giant step and they do something that they couldn't do. Why? Because they were hanging on to me or Lisa? No. Because we were hanging on to them. And I love this because you look at this and, and Jesus actually says this. He said, um, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. See, when you make a decision to walk with Jesus and to follow him, it's not one hand you take hold of or that takes hold of you, it's two. <laughs> you become that kid in the middle. The Father's got one hand and Jesus has got the other and it's a secure place. It's a safe place. And so Jesus says to this crowd, the, the problem is, is that you're not amongst my sheep and then to be in, in relationship with Jesus is just to do this, to put your hand into his. I was thinking about that. I thought, man, I love that. It's just a simple way to describe. You want to know what a relationship with Jesus is? It's to put your hand into his and to let him lead you. When you do that, the Father takes the other hand and you're secure. You put your hand in that nail-scarred hand of Jesus and the Father grabs the other hand and the Lord says, let's go. Hear my voice. Follow me. In fact, Jesus says to this crown, verse 30, I and the Father are one. So this is the answer to the question. I mean, it's like, Jesus, who are you? Tell us plainly. It can't be any more clear than that right there. I and the Father are one. Now, Jesus isn't, he isn't saying we're the same person. He's saying, he, he, he's saying, well, he's not saying the Father and the Son are two distinct persons. The Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. They're two distinct persons, but Jesus says when we're one, when he says we're one, He's saying we're one in essence. We're one in will. We're one in heart and in, and in mind and in, 
and in purpose. Jesus is speaking about his unity with the Father. He's speaking about the Father and the Son's unity, not their identity. See, Jesus shares with his Father unity. They have an identical will. They have an identical purpose. Their purpose is this, the salvation of the sheep. That's why the Father sent the Son. That was the mission Jesus, the Son of God, was on to save his sheep, to save his people from sin. And the Father and the Son are one in their nature and they're one in their will. Just as the Father is God, so the Son is God. And it's mysterious, man. I mean, it's like, wow, it's amazing. But this crowd knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew what he was inferring. They knew what he was communicating. He was claiming to be God, and they knew it. They understood it. You know, sometimes people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. They don't know what they're talking about. This crowd knew what Jesus was talking about. And their reaction tells us it. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is actually about the fifth time John tells us of a murderous plot to kill Jesus. And they've got him. He's surrounded. He's boxed in. Found stones right there on the Temple Mount. Solomon's colonnade. And they're going to they're smash his head in. But verse 32, Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which, of the, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Did Jesus claim to be God? Well, the Jews said he did. You make yourself to be God. They, and, and it's interesting, because, you know, he's been a problem for them. You know, you do this healing on the Sabbath, and you do this, Jesus, and you do this. But they actually say this, we, we don't find anything objectionable about what you've done. What we object to is what you've said. We object to your word. I was thinking about this. Isn't that true today? I mean, like you talk to people and you say, hey, Jesus, say, oh yeah, Jesus was a good man. I don't have any problem with anything Jesus did. Where do people get hung up on Jesus? It's what he said. They get hung up on the word of God. They get hung up on the word. They object to his word. And, and, and this crowd objected because he, they said, being a mere man, claimed to be God. So Jesus answers them. Verse 34. Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Interesting passage of scripture. You ever come across this one and go, what is going on here? I mean, it's strange that Jesus uh, gives this answer. No, oh, Scripture says, I said of you in your law, you are gods. What's Jesus referring to here? 
Well, first of all, I'd say this. Just let me premise it by saying this. Jesus isn't speaking to his sheep. Remember that? This is a problem you don't understand me. The reason why you can't understand me is because you're not of my flock. You're not my sheep. And so Jesus is not talking to people who are following him. He is talking to unbelievers. And so he takes a human argument here and he shows them something in the law to deflect them and to get them going in another direction. And it's a strange answer. This is a weird answer to me. Like whenever I read this in the Bible, I was like, this is weird. But it disarms them. Disarms these people who have stones in their hands. And Jesus quotes Psalm 82. And so I encourage you, actually, let's go there. Let's go Psalm 82. Let's read it. It's really short. Give us a bit of context. You there? Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Psalm 82 does this. It speaks of God as the, he's the true judge of all men. That God is the judge of all men. But God has done this. He's appointed human judges. And so this psalm says this. That, that you who have been point, appointed human judges. You sit in the seat of God. You have the power of life and death. You can grant justice and mercy. Or you can, you can condemn. You have the, the power of life and death. And, and so this Psalm calls human judges gods with a small g. All of you are gods, it says. Little g gods. And the psalm says this, make right judgments. If you sit in the seat of God and your God calls you to make judgments for those who are oppressed, widows, orphans, whoever it is, then you make right judgments judgments be God's representative it's not speaking the psalm's not speaking about mankind's divine nature it's speaking about sitting in the seat of God and and it's interesting here that Jesus says scripture cannot be broken if God calls them gods and scripture cannot be broken then that's what they are it's kind of weird when you when you read that but it's interesting Jesus says scripture cannot be broken Scripture can't be broken. That's a great verse about the inerrancy of Scripture. That your Bible is not broken. It's not messed up. It's not, somebody didn't mistranslate it. They give you whatever human argument. Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. Boy, that gives me confidence in the Word of God. That it's inerrant. That it's the word of God is incapable of being wrong. 
Which means this, that when I come into conflict with the word of God, then someone's wrong. It's not the word of God. The word of God's right. I'm the one who needs to adjust and come under the authority of the word of God. And we don't sit as judges over the word of God. The, the writer of Hebrews says this, that, that the word discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so we allow God's word to search us. It shows us our need for Jesus. It declares to us the power of Jesus to save us from sin and death declares and calls us to put our hand in the hand of Jesus, to repent of sin and turn in faith and follow him. And so Jesus says, the scripture calls men gods, and it can't be broken, little g gods. So Jesus says, just simple human argument, why have you upset with me? So I said I'm the son of God. <laughs> it's pretty smart, right? Like, you're like, oh, okay. And he disarmed them. But, verse 39 says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. Now you ever wonder, how did he do that? He's boxed in. They got him. He's in Solomon's colonnade. It's like, well, I don't know, what, did they part like the Red Sea? Did he just disappear? Did he just walk through and nobody touched him? I mean, they, they sought to arrest him. He escaped their hands. He escaped their hands. But you know what's beautiful? When you put your hand in Jesus, he said, that's secure. <sighs> he escaped their hands, but he said, boy, you put your hand in mine, I got you. So John tells us that Jesus left Jerusalem. We'll wrap up here pretty quick. And he returns to where his whole ministry began at the Jordan River where he was baptized by John. And so verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had first had been baptizing at first and there he remained. And many came to him. They said John did no sign but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. And so we're, we're, we're like, we're on the journey to the cross. We're months out. And Jesus makes a decision. He has to leave Jerusalem. It's just like mayhem, all this expectation and false expectation. And so he returns to the place where his ministry began. Interesting picture of Jesus. To return to that spot, to cross the Jordan where John had been baptizing and there Jesus remained. The crowds were coming to him. And people, John says, were, were saying this about John the Baptist and about Jesus. That John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. It's funny, like you grow up in church and like in Pentecost and you like, often I hear people, it's like, you want to perform miracles. You know, you want to do signs, like lay hands on the sick and, God, you know, pray we'd see the dead raised. And I mean, we believe in miracles. I want to see miracles. But to me, it's interesting that it says about John, the Baptist, who Jesus called, by the way, the greatest of men ever born of a woman. He said, they said, John did no signs. None. 
And you know what that tells me is this, and I want to encourage you with this, that you don't need to be a miracle worker to be great in the kingdom of God. You don't need to perform any signs or wonders or miracles in the kingdom of God to be great. All you have to do is what John did, point people to Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Tell the truth about Jesus. John did no miracles. No blind people saw under the ministry of John. No lame person walked because John laid his hands on them. He didn't walk on water. He didn't, you know, feed a multitude. But what he did was this. He used his voice and he spoke about Jesus. Let me remind you what John taught. John called people to repent. He said, repent. Be washed of your sin. But then he pointed to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I can tell you to repent, but Jesus will actually take your sin away. He's the Lamb of God. Another thing that's mastered you, Jesus will take it away if you give it to him. John baptized people with water, which is awesome. It was a great outward sign, an external work, the washing of the body on the outside. But John pointed to Jesus and he said, you know, I can wash the outside, but Jesus, he'll baptize you on the inside. Jesus will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and there'll be living water inside of you. There'll be a spring inside of you. He'll do what I can't do. I can only wash the outside. He'll transform you on the inside. John says, I, I tell you, repent of sin and, and be baptized, but Jesus will take away your sin and Jesus will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. I tell you to empty your life and Jesus will fill your life. John pointed to Jesus and he said, that's the bridegroom. I'm just the voice, I'm just a voice calling out in the wilderness and I'm announcing the coming of the bridegroom. That was his job, to point the bride to the groom. Simple job and he announced, he announced Jesus' arrival and then, then it's like, John just is gone. When the bridegroom arrives. He pointed to Jesus and said, I'm just the servant. He's the son of God. He's the lamb of God. He's the bridegroom. He's the one coming for you. The relationship you are looking for is found in him. Not with me. It's with him. Put your hand in his hand. Follow him. And so, you know, I read this about John and I just think, hey, I want to encourage you. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Just point people to Jesus. Say, follow Jesus. Jesus will take your sin away. And, and that's the truth today. Scripture tells us that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Scripture tells us that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Scripture tells us that Jesus is the bridegroom coming for his church, his bride. And so the question was this, who, is, who are you? Tell us plainly. And what does Jesus come out and say? He's the son of God. And as I read this, the challenge I just want to 
leave you with is this, the question, have you put your hand in Jesus' hand? Have you put your hand in Jesus' hand? Because to do that, to have relationship with him is to hear his voice. It's to be known by him and to know him. To have relationship with Jesus is eternal life. To have relationship with Jesus is to be free on the inside, set free from the power of sin and to have the opportunity to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. To have relationship with Jesus means that there's, there's no fear in death. To have relationship with Jesus is to be secure. And in an insecure world, how wonderful to be secure in Christ Jesus. And John tells us in verse 42, and many believed in him there. That's it, man. Right there. Just so simple right there. They believed. Do you believe? 